On this episode of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast, I'm joined by Stefan Sagmeister. In fact, I'm joined by Stefan twice, as this is the first of a two-parter. Stefan has designed for clients as diverse as the Rolling Stones and the Guggenheim Museum. He's a two-time Grammys winner and also earned practically every important international design award that there is to earn. Whilst his work is steeped in graphics, he's also directed a film, created furniture, made products, designed a watch, and ventured into clothing. His books sell in the hundreds of thousands, and his exhibitions have been mounted in dozens of museums around the world. His exhibit, The Happy Show, attracted way over half a million visitors worldwide and became the most visited graphics show in history. Stefan is from Austria, and he received his MFA from the University of Applied Arts in Vienna, and, as a Fulbright Scholar, a master's degree from the Pratt Institute in New York. His motto is, design that needed guts from the creator and still carries the ghost of these guts in the final execution. I'm thrilled to be chatting with Stefan Sagmeister. Stefan, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I'm very happy to be part of this. Thank you. So I wanted to start as I always do, and I wanted to ask you a bit about yourself. Well, I'm an Austrian designer who lives and works in New York City since a very long time. I have a company named after myself since a good 30 years now. And it's ultimately, I would say, we are steeped in graphics. But because I get bored very easily, we go into different directions all the time. So from the base of graphics, we went into furniture, into uh into movie making, into uh, into products, and now very recently into fashion or into clothing. And it's just, you will see all the time, and I think it's necessary that, you know, I would never call myself a fashion designer or a filmmaker. This is all basically somebody who learned and did graphics all their life, you know, messing around in other people's professions. but. Uh, maybe because it's all graphics, it also, meaning the desire, of course, to bring a little bit of a different aspect to these other professions. Yeah, and that's why I asked partly that, but also because I wondered how you describe yourself because you've got such a diverse body of work. And I know you started as a graphic designer. Do you still think of yourself as a graphic designer? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Uh, it's meaning sometimes I just say designer because the work is, you know, so diverse. But I would say that, uh, yeah, I'm, I think I ultimately was born one. I meaning as long as I can remember, that's what I wanted to be. And in the when I was in situations in my life where, you know, I couldn't do graphic design, as in when I was, you know, had to do alternative military service, like you know, work in Austria as a you know civil as a doing civil service. I discovered within days how much I missed it and found and finagled my way into a position where I could do design again in my civil service position. Or when I did, you know, one of my sabbaticals, I would have assumed that the first couple of weeks I would just, you know, whatever, sit at the pool and read or do things like that was not the case. I was designing on day one at six in the morning simply because 
when I could do whatever I wanted to do, it turned out that I liked doing design the best, more than sitting on the pool reading. So why do you think that is? You know, I used to think that it was my particular situation growing up. I used to think that this was all nurture that influenced that thing. But now the more I follow the discussion in the scientific world, it seems that there is a lot of nature in there. Like I, I really, like I used to believe that genetic information or basically whatever you would call that talent played no or very little of a role. But I think that as further down the road we get into genetic research, it seems that, or I think the the last discussions that I followed seem to be the case that roughly it's half-half, half nature, meaning like half of who you are is genetic and the other half is the environment that you grow up in. And they know this, they basically do these, these ideas from twin, from genetically twin research. And I think there's about 650 same egg twins in the world that have that were separated at birth. And of course, those poor guys and girls are the incredible focus of all these researchers because that's incredibly interesting. So they, they came to the conclusion that it's half-half uh, from that research, but it turned out apparently that because your world, the world that you grow up in, your parents, your siblings, your friends react on who you are from your genes. Your genes actually, as you grow older, play a much bigger role because the nurture, the world of nurturing is reacting to your genetical uh, your makeup. Uh, makeup. And so let's say if you're if you're 50% says that you are uh, that you really like to read. Okay, it's just 50%, but very much likely your parents see that you really like to read and they really change their habits to the kid that really loves to read so that your 50% uh, uh, position of really liking to read becomes much more important because the world reacts to it. So, uh, yeah, that's... so. That was a very long answer to your very short question, which, so now I do believe that somewhere in my makeup that probably was predetermined. And if I actually am lucky to have a very detailed, very long family history, we have a very, very, we probably have one of Austria's best historians in our family, and he wrote uh, a beautiful family history going back to the middle of the 18th century. And uh, so I know, for example, uh, I have a very good historic makeup of my granddad, who I've never met, but who was a sign painter in learned how to paint signs in the middle of the 19th century, which of course was a graphic design, a graphic design as a profession didn't exist in 1880. Uh, it was, you know, basically graphic design was taken care of by printers on the 
production side and by sign painters on the uh, uh, you know on the individual side. He of course learned it, loved it, but ultimately was not really allowed to practice it because the family had a kind of all sorts of goods uh, and clothing store that he was forced to take over, which was very, very normal at the time. Basically, you had to become what your dad was. This was, you know, meaning obviously this is how family names were created, Miller, Schneider, and so on. But that basically was how Europe with professional pursuits, you became what your dad was. No, no, it's interesting you say that my great uncle was also a sign writer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, but you didn't become a graphic designer. Nearly. I did. My first degree was graphic design. <laughs> so, well, uh, uh, we are obviously still all in that tradition. I was lucky enough to be, you know, born in the second half of the 20th century when these sort of things were seen much more from a with an open mind and i think that the reason that my dad supported me in when i wanted to become a graphic designer was somewhat influenced by the fact that he saw his dad being somewhat unhappy in the store and even my own dad who again took over the store i think did so Nicely, but mostly because he married my mom, who loved being in a store. And so my dad really, I think, would have been much better suited to pursue something with languages. But uh, I think he was open to let his kids choose what they wanted to do, because it was a new generation and a new time, really. So, and that's quite amazing. I mean, it, it's interesting that there's an interpretation of influence, you know, mm -hmm. how, you know, your career has in effect been influenced by what's come before you. 100%. I mean, I think that ultimately those big choices, but then also all the small choices, I'm meaning like, you know, my tiny choice between this color and that color or this typeface and that, that typeface or this kerning decision to that kerning decision ultimately have all been influenced by people who came before me, you know, that wonderful saying that we're all stay, standing on the shoulder of giants. Of course, very, very true. Mm. So I was wondering then, You've, you, you've got this very diverse uh, portfolio of work. You have a very, I believe, clear philosophy about your approach to work and to life. What's, your, what's the most exciting thing that you do in your work and what inspires you? Well, I mean, I think right now I'm uh, very much fascinated by this idea of looking at the world from a long-term perspective. Because as media has become so very short-cycled, you know, from yearly almanacs to monthly magazines to always on cable TV news and Twitter, it has become, by its definition, much more negative. And this is not just my opinion. You can look at this scientifically and see how the tone of the news, even in the last decade, has become much more negative. And we as people, because of our 
genetic makeup, makeup because of evolution are so much more prone to taking negative news than positive news. We love negativity, specifically when it happens to other people. So the reason media is so negative and every front page of every newspaper around the world is negative news is because we love it. And, and so do I. But interestingly, when we look at the world from a long-term perspective, from almost in almost anything that is important to us, it actually developed positively. So, you know, now you can say, so what do you mean by positively? And I mean, or what do you mean by the different perspectives? So I would say, I think there is a wide agreement around people around the world that we are rather alive than dead. Most of us, with a couple of people who kill themselves, but most of us think that being alive is better than being dead. Now, we all know, and that's a pretty wide-known fact, is that we now live average worldwide 72 years, as opposed to 200 years ago, average worldwide 29 years. This is progress, because we are rather alive than that. But the rest, but in many other aspects, this is true too. We are rather fed than being hungry. We are rather in peaceful, we rather live in peace than in war. We rather live in democracies than in dictatorships. We are rather healthy than sick. And all of these things have been measured very well, not by little universities, but by the UN, by the World Bank, by like serious, trustworthy institutions. And all of these things have become incredibly better. But if you look at the news because of our love for negativity, this becomes very unclear. And because I see myself, and now we are finally at the end of this long uh, preaching cycle, uh, because I see myself as a communication designer, I find that gap between, if you look at it from a long-term perspective, and what Twitter just tells me, very interesting, and want to do something about it. So basically, almost all the projects that I've been working on for the last couple of years are somewhat trying to communicate that in many, many ways, things are better now than they used to be. That's basically, that's bringing it on a point. And I'm trying this in pieces that you can hang on the wall. So they look like art, but they're really design. I'm trying to do this in clothing. So stuff that people would wear that have some sort of uh, uh, data visualizations on them. I mean, it looks more like an abstract form, but it is really a data visualization. I'm trying that in glasses. Uh, look, I have one right here. Uh, I'm drawing this on a watch, blah, blah. I'm trying it. I have another one here on uh, on um, uh, espresso cups. See, the data here is reflected into the cup uh, by its saucer, and so forth and so on. Uh, and it's uh, that has been a very rewarding kind of exercise because... I believe it's the kind of thing that I'm so that I'm supposed to be doing right now. 
you know, I could also continue to do branding or which is fine. I have nothing against branding. I just feel I've done enough of that stuff in my life. So I want to do other things that are more juicy, more exciting. Uh, and so it's, I think it's, it's, I feel it's the kind of thing that I'm supposed to be doing because the content I research and it comes from me, it seems to be much easier to get through if I'm working on a client than if I'm doing something promotional. So it's somewhat a more pleasant environment to be in. Uh, and I get good feedback. Not always, because I also feel that, or I also see that some people don't want to really hear that things developed well. Like, they want to own the misery. Specifically where I come from. Like, you know, I've just spent the week in Vienna. Uh, it's, uh, I feel that the further you go east, the more suspicious people are of anybody who is doing well or who claims to be in a good mood. Like, I think the people in Vienna feel that if you're in a good mood, you must be somehow stupid because very clearly you are not understanding the weight and the misery of the world. And, uh, you know, more power to them. This, the news thing is, has always fascinated me. I always say, where's the good news? Well, the good news is there. It's just that we don't, we are not interested in it. I think there were a couple of attempts to create a good news only newspaper failed within weeks. And even the attempts that I see on the web, like, you know, my former client and uh, I'm happy to call him good friend, David Byrne is doing a website called uh, Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful. Now, this is David Byrne, who is a rock star, whose, you know, whose band, uh, The Talking Heads, is still, like, even though, you know, it's, uh, they haven't been together in decades, but their songs are everywhere. Wherever I go, I mean, in, including even the supermarket or so, plays The Talking Heads. And if you look at reasons to be cheerful, considering David Byrne is behind it, I think they have... 30,000 followers on Instagram, which is not, I mean, this is not the rocks, that is not a rock star following. Uh, it's just basically, ultimately, I think we really like when we ourselves are doing well. But if we are, if it's about other people, we much, much rather, I mean, just look at, I mean, if you will, if we would chart something that's happening right now, like say, if we chart the pandemic, when the pandemic was really bad, we had so many, so much more news about it than when it, when it, when it eased off. And when once the news about the pandemic became positive, nobody wanted, nobody was interested anymore. Maybe it was still interesting when it affected us directly ourselves. So if there were good news, literally within our little district, that's interesting. But 
the pandemic's easing in Europe, here in New York, nobody gives a shit. It's much more interesting. It was interesting when the pandemic was hitting Italy super, super hard. Now, that was news. It's, it's, I think we're all that way. And it's the same with the war that's going on. It's, uh, it's very, it's, it's sort of sad, but that's how we are. And I'm like this, meaning it's not like that I'm above this, not at all. Like I'm just, I'm just built the same way as everybody else is. Mm. No, and I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, often I say to myself, you know, I need to be more positive about things. I say, I, I say it to myself and in conversations with people, I'm thinking I need to be more positive because I do have, I'm, I'm quite cynical anyway mm -hmm. but <laughs> i do have a ten you know i suppose like you've said you know one has a tendency to look for the negative rather than looking for the positive yeah is this what inspired you to make you i mean i don't know if you want to go that far back because i know you talk about the film a lot the the you know mm -hmm. your happy film is that what inspired you to do that all those years ago no i think that the happy film really came out of the second sabbatical in bali and there it was more the situation that I was busy creating furniture for the studio that was being renovated in New York. And my friend George came by and thought that I'm completely wasting my time and I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And uh, like his point was that I somehow had an obligation to create things where other people would have something from it. And I wasn't sure if that was really the case, like if I was really obligated to do so. But I felt he had enough of a point to basically stop what I was doing and give it a couple of days of allowing myself to think in a completely different direction. And at that point, I already had done previously in previous years, I sort of had stopped doing the straightforward presentations of the studio's work. And I had put together a presentation that was called Design and Happiness, where I had ultimately ordered, I still showed the studio's work, but it was more sort of like ordered along the lines of, while we were doing this, did we have a good time doing this or a bad time? And as far as the reactions of the audience, of the users that we did this for, can I tell were these pieces, were they making people happier? Were they making people unhappier? And this, like ordering the work on, along these sort of criteria seemed to be interesting for audiences. Like it, they, I, I felt that this was a more interesting approach to design than here is this piece and here is that piece and this is the piece that we did for that and this is the piece that we did for that. And so while in Bali, I felt maybe I should make its own project out of this. And at the time it was, let's do a film simply because it would be more challenging. I never had done a film. Like it, at the time, it would have been very easy to do a book because we had done plenty of books, even about larger subjects. So I thought, oh, let's jump and do a film. Of course, not knowing, being naive helped a lot because it turned into a total disaster. The, that, that, that decision to, to make a film 
was so much more so much more difficult than I had envisioned it to be, um, and had many other you know had many other consequences. Uh, but also also some positive ones, but uh, lots of negative ones. You are ultimately happy with the film now. Yes, yeah. I think that the, we, we ultimately, after eight years of work and an incredible amount of frustration, I think we managed to make a film that is watchable, that I, that I think that you can watch from the beginning to the end without being bored. But I was unaware how difficult that would be because I found that I, as an audience member, am incredibly spoiled because I've seen so much and I've seen so much by really like created by really, really, really good people that to reach, to reach the point where the film is actually watchable, where it's, you're not bored is already extremely difficult. And, uh, uh, I was I was very much surprised by that and incredibly frustrated in the doing. Meaning now, of course, having gone through it, it's not a surprise because design I've really learned. Like I've learned it from the ground up, which means that if I'm in trouble in design, meaning like I'm at a point where I wanted it to be good, but it really is awful. I have a whole little toolbox in the back of my pocket of things that can help it to at least get out of the awful stage and get somewhere where I can deal with it again. In film, I was fucked because I knew what we just created was really awful, but I didn't know how to make it better. I just knew it was awful. And that's a very, that's not a good place to be. You have the luxury of being creative. I got the luxury word in there. You have, the, you know, you have the luxury of being creative and having, I suppose, vision to be able to see that it was well. I suppose you think it was awful, and then finding ways to remedy that. But I think we had the luxury of time because uh, we had a very innovative way of financing the film. So I didn't really, uh, we didn't really have people. At the uh, on our back saying, well, now you have to finish it. So uh, we could uh, basically this could have also become a twenty-five year project. Like it didn't really matter. Like uh, there was uh, from the financial point of view, we could do this for as long as we wanted. Uh, it just became uh, it's good that we stopped it at eight. Do you think there's a luxury in being able to do or have the freedom to work in all these different? disciplines yes yes totally and i think that i would say there's a number of luxuries that i really value and that i'm also truly aware of uh one of them is that i without knowing it chose a profession that allows for an incredible wide breadth of possibilities, or to be extremely narrow depending your personality. I mean, I know designers who are happy to work on something super, super narrow and really figure this out. I had a student once whose dream was to animate hair. And for her, uh, 
basically the jump from bear hair to dog hair already was a different world. And that was all the, the diversion she needed. In my case, I need a very, very wide world. And I was lucky, not that it was not done with smartness. I was lucky to, by chance, be in a profession that allows that very, very well. So that I can, you know, make a movie in the morning, a website in the afternoon, and a postage stamp in the evening, and something that you hang on the wall at night without having to call myself or be in a different profession. I think that's one. Number two is that I find it, of course, unbelievably luxurious that I am now very much be, that I'm very able to choose the directions that I'm going in. That it's, you know, basically, I would say that 99 out of 100 design companies in the world are basically servicing clients. And so the client would come and they, they have some sort of need that needs to be fulfilled and the design company would fulfill that need. You know, there's a problem that somehow needs to be solved. And this is totally fine and completely, completely great. And I still find the freedom that I'm able to solve, to basically place those problems myself and then solve them, uh, I find that freedom very luxurious and uh, and wonderful, really. Uh, and so I would say that those two are probably the biggest luxuries that happened to me in my life. Typically, luxury brands talk about their brand. Sure. And I was wondering how and if you would or could reconcile this notion of branding and luxury? I mean, obviously, I would say branding plays a bigger role in luxury than it plays in everyday products. No doubt about it. It's, you know, meaning you can ease and you can have an easy, an easy uh, checkup on that. Let's say if you come, I don't know, if you go to, Dwayne Reed, or if you go to any a pharmacy and you buy a, a headache uh, pill, you can buy the generic product there for let's say four dollars, and you and you want the the Tylenol or the Bayer or whatever the the branded product that it's probably fifteen dollars. So you pay roughly three or four times as much for the branded product because you want the security of the brand and maybe you feel it works a little bit better and your dad already used it and whatnot. So you're willing to pay three or four times as much. Now, if you do, if you go into luxury, let's say you're buying a bag from Hermes. And you buy, if you can get one, you want to buy a Kelly bag or a Birkin bag, you pay 10,000 bucks for it or $8,000. And if you have to buy it at auction, there's a multiple of that bag that you can buy at auction. But let's say you can go into the Hermes store and they actually sell you one, a, a, uh, 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 it's like eight or $10,000. Now you can also go down to Canal Street and buy one that looks very similar, very similar. It's not quite the same quality, but it definitely has the Hermes logo on it. And from 
if you're not an expert in that bag, you basically cannot tell the difference between the two. I think my guess is that you can tell it if you if you're carrying it and wearing it and see the the quality of the leather and the hardware. But it looks very very similar. You can buy it for two hundred bucks. So instead of buying paying three or four times as much, you're suddenly paying forty times as much from two hundred to eight thousand dollars. So that's quite a difference. And then of course. If you want to go into true luxury, meaning into contemporary art, you can buy, you know, a, I don't know, you can pay a balloon dog from Jeff Koons, you can pay 80 million for it, or you can get it uh, a sort of similar looking copy out of China for 2000 bucks. So now suddenly you're paying 40,000 times as much for the true branded balloon dog. And that, of course, has a lot to do with the fact that you're not only paying for the brand once, but you're paying for four or five brands. You're paying mostly and mainly for the brand of Jeff Koons, for the artist brands, but then you're also paying for the brand of the gallery who carries him, Gogoshin. You're paying for the brand that uh, that of the collector who had him, we know David Rockefeller, you're paying for the brand of the auction house that you ultimately got it from, from Christie's, and so forth and on. So you basically, you have a whole layer of brands going on top of it. Okay, there's a lot to unpick there. Thank you, Stefan, for joining us. Thank you to our partners, Intellect Books. And of course, thank you for listening. And don't forget, this was the first of a two-part chat with Stefan. And you can listen to the second part, which is the first of season seven. So join us then. And don't forget, you can listen to all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favorite listening channel.